to PathPod. Today we're gathered around the scope to discuss residency applications. Your host, Dr. Swickwardy Bascota, will be talking to program directors and residents to get their tips and tricks on navigating the residency application process. Hello, and welcome to another brand new episode of PathPod, Beyond the Scope episode of Navigating ERAS residency application process. I'm Swikriti Baskoda, your host. I'm currently an assistant professor of cytopathology and surgical pathology at Columbia University Medical Center, New York. You can find me on Twitter Twitter at Baskoda Cytopath. I'm also the founder of Mastropath website, a dedicated platform to help pathology applicants with the residency application process. Our team at Mastropath is grateful to the PathPod team for this collaborative postcard episode. You can visit our website at www.matchtopack.com. With this, I would like to introduce our guests for this episode, which includes a great combination of pathology residency directors and current residents with an intention to give perspective from both the residency programs and the applicants. Without further ado, let me introduce our guest. Dr. Thomas Cummings, MD, is currently a professor of pathology and director of neuropathology and ophthalmic pathology, as well as residency program director at Duke University, North Carolina. You can follow him in Twitter as at the red TJCMD888. Thank you, Dr. Cummings, for being here. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Next, we have Dr. Carlos Pagan, MD, who is currently an assistant professor of surgical and molecular pathology at Columbia University. He's also the pathology residency program director. You can follow him in Twitter at, at C-A-Pagan, P-A-T-H-Path. Let me spell Pagan for you, P-A-Z-A-N. Um, welcome, Dr. Pagan. Thank you, Zirgati. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's all, the pleasure is all mine. Next, we have Dr. Clarissa Jordan, a PZY3 resident at Mayo Clinic. She's a future hematopathology fellow as well at Mayo Clinic. You can follow her on Twitter at PathCEJMD. Clarissa is an American medical graduate from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And she also has written a blog regarding couples match in pathology, which you can find in our website, www.matchtopath.com. Welcome, Clarissa. We're glad you're here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Uh, last but not the least, we have Dr. Melissa Meha Bautista, a PZY4 resident at Northwestern University. She, she was also the immediate chief resident for the year 2021 and 2022. And she's going to be a future pediatric pathology fellow at Boston Children's Hospital. Melissa is an international medical graduate from El Salvador. And you can find her in Twitter at Melissa underscore MB91. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm happy to be here. Same here. I'm super excited about this episode. But before proceeding, I would like to mention a disclaimer. All opinions expressed in this show are of individual alone and do not represent the institution they are affiliated with. With this, let's start the official podcast. The ERAS 2023 season began on June 8, 2022. Applicants can begin submitting ERAS applications starting on September 7th at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and the programs can start reviewing applications beginning September 28, 2022. 
Let's begin with the preparation phase prior to the submission of the URAS application. I would like to ask the first question to Clarissa. What are the aspects of the URAS application that should be prioritized so that it is available on time for review? Yeah, um, I think that's an excellent question. Uh, for me, the two aspects of my application that kind of took the longest and therefore what I would start with first are going to be both your personal statement um, and also the ERAS CV. Uh, specifically, I think the ERAS CV took me a little longer to put together than I had initially expected just because, um, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're uh, not forgetting anything, of course, on your CV that you've done. And then also including all the relevant details, like, for instance, if you can include the number of hours you spent on an activity, that's always good. So um, I think those those two items kind of took a little longer um, than expected, and, and therefore those are the things I would start with. Um, as far as your personal statement goes, uh, you know, starting early, I think, just gives you a little time to kind of percolate ideas and also to show your personal statement to your mentors or friends or um, people who might be able to kind of uh, help give you some guidance or just some feedback on your personal statement. Um, and along those same lines, you know, if you don't have um, people who you you know would want to show your personal statement to. I work with uh, Inside the Match uh, on Twitter, and they have a program that pairs current residents uh, in your specialty with applicants, uh, and we review personal statements. So that's available as well. Um, but I, I personally just showed my personal statement to my mentors um, and you know my family uh, who had some good feedback for me. So yeah, just in conclusion, those are kind of the two things that I would start with. Uh, I second uh, Clarissa's uh, opinion. I think it's a good way to put uh, as much as you want in your personal statement if you give enough time to review to multiple people. And, you know, since uh, all of the attendings who you are requesting to review PS are certainly busy, maybe giving them 15 to 20 or even a month time to review a PS sounds appropriate. With that, let's move to Melissa. In your opinion, what is different from an international medical graduate perspective to prepare to submit an application? What are the challenges or delays they might face to have a complete application available to the program on time? Thank you. I think that's a great question. And there are certain differences for IMGs, specifically regarding the timeline. Uh, since the graduation date, we have to be very careful on scheduling all the exams on time and considering that getting the results takes a while as well. Um, so taking that into account to be sure that we can have our certificate on time for the time of application. And also uh, it depends if you want to prepare for the process from your home country, or if you wanna come to the US uh, to prepare for the whole uh, process that might also require some extra planning regarding immigration processes, uh, visa uh, considerations. Uh, in other regards. Um, additionally, uh, significant delays can happen with medical schools. We need to be sure that medical schools are familiarized with this process. They are aware that they have to submit certain requirements for us and they have to uh, like clarify some uh, requirements with ECFMG. And finally, just uh, of course, getting the clinical experience and the letters of recommendations can take some extra time. Thank you, uh, Melisha. Even from my personal experience, the most difficulty I faced while I was applying to pathology residency was I was an old graduate. So it took uh, 
almost like two months for my medical school to verify my graduation certificate. And it kind of delayed my ECFMZ registration process a lot. But by the time I was applying to RAS residency, I think that was already taken care of. But, uh, but again, you need some, for instance, now like program are required to upload the MSPE directly from their uh, home institution, um, which is again, a huge challenge in, from a perspective of international medical graduates. So there's no other solution than starting way ahead of time, right? Thank you so much again, Melissa. With that, let's move to Dr. Pagan. And he's my current colleague as well. We share a number of cases together, have a very exciting discussion. So I'm really glad that you're here with me. So with, uh, my question to you is, with the COVID-19 pandemic and the shift of paradigm to virtual application review and interview, how does a program prepare to make their program visible to residency applicants? Thank you. So... As you know, the COVID pandemic has really shifted how we conduct interviews. Everything has moved into the virtual space. So for programs, engaging in those virtual spaces is incredibly important to make sure that applicants know about us, about our programs, about what's available, and make great choices when choosing who to interview and eventually who you'll rank with. Um, for us, making sure that our website includes a lot of information for applicants, making sure that they make really informed decisions, telling them about how the daily work of our resident, what, what it's like, uh, telling them who our residents are so you get an idea of what kind of groups of residents you're joining, being transparent about our benefits, about our salaries, all those things are extremely important and really help applicants uh, come with an informed decision by the time they, they interview with us. Um, it's always important also for us when we have virtual interviews that we provide a really diverse and engaging interview day. You know, it's very different when you get to walk around in a hospital setting and the offices and pathology and you kind of see what people are doing. But when you are an interview, you really only see the inside of people's offices. So getting a, a good snapshot of all the faculty members, are they smiling? Getting to meet the residents are all really important things to allow you to really get a feel of what the department is like. Uh, so meeting faculty, meeting residents, meeting even staff, the program coordinators, getting a, ch a chance to kind of take the pulse of the program is really important, especially during uh, virtual interview season. I cannot agree more to that. I have a, actually a follow-up question to you, Dr. Pagan, since like we are almost three years into the pandemics now. Do you think this year we're going to have a mixed virtual and on-site interview for most of the programs? I think uh, many of us would love to go back to, you know, in-person interviews. But I think the, the, the atmosphere is that we'll continue with virtual, uh, virtual interviews. For many, you know, there's many pros to the virtual interviews. Applicants save a lot of money uh, instead of having to travel everywhere. And I see everybody nodding their heads. I think we'll probably remain virtual. Uh, and, you know, with the pros and cons for each of those different styles of interviewing, I think for the moment, uh, virtual interviews will take over and, and we'll continue that for the current year. I cannot argue with more that we spend a ton of money traveling and I still have nightmares of traveling in those Greyhound, you know. <laughs> I don't want to do it anymore <laughs> if I can avoid it at all costs. You know, it was fun basically in pathology since you travel from one state to another. You, I did see a lot of United States uh, when I was traveling, but right now I would prefer to drive than travel <laughs> or even virtual platform. 
Anyway. Yeah, I also added a lot of states uh, to my, you know, list of visited states, but I think I was also very sick of airports by the time interview season was done. So yeah, I can imagine uh, things might be a little easier with regards to that uh, for the virtual interview. Yeah, virtual interview definitely has some perks. Thank you. I will add, if that's okay, I did sleep in a lot of couches and I did connect with a lot of friends in many different cities and it was wonderful to have that experience. However, my wallet did suffer for that year significantly. Right, right. Yeah, that, that kind of suffices our interview journey, you know, for most of us, I guess. Now, next question to Dr. Cummings. ERAS also has a specified time frame to submit supplemental ERAS application. What does the supplemental ERAS application consist of? Does it apply to pathology for this application season? To answer the question, no, I do not believe it applies to pathology this interview season. And the supplemental application, I think, basically has three components. It's in addition to your, your application, you have another opportunity to, to put yourself forward on your past experiences and geographic preferences and so-called signals, where an applicant can so-called signal a program that you have an interest in. I believe program directors in pathology around the country have had discussions about this. And I think like anything, there's you know, it's a discussion and there's pros and cons. I think the supplemental really helps uh, specialties that are getting thousands of applicants. And it's more difficult for them to go through thousands of applications. I don't think I can tell you how many applications my program gets or how many we interview, but it's doable with our team, our, our recruitment review team to, to go through every application. And by the way, if you submit an application, it will be reviewed, it will be read. I don't have any automatic filters that immediately discount people. I think that's disingenuous and not fair and people are paying money to apply and everyone deserves to be heard. Unfortunately, I can't interview everyone that applied. Quite frankly, I think it's a very small percentage of people that miss the cut but you just have to draw the line somewhere. And I'm criticized, I interview too many people, if you can believe that. Now, I believe, in my opinion, your ERAS application, between your application and your personal statement and interview day and communications with the residents in a program or even communications you may have after the interview day, you can get all this information across. I think talking about past experiences and geographic preferences and programs you're interested in, you can all fit that in your personal statement and on your interview day. And the rules of the match are very clear about uh, applicants being allowed to show interest in a program and programs showing interest in an applicant. Now, I know this gets a lot of people, a lot of discussion about what it is and what it isn't, and I can go into all of this and you know, you can't, you can't game the match. You make your rank list the way you make, the way that's best for you. And as a program, I'm making my rank list the way I interpret it to be the best. 
It doesn't matter if you send a letter of intent. It doesn't matter if on your interview day, you made no mention of wanting to be in the South or you, you're anti-Duke or you're pro-Duke, uh, whatever. When I interview you and we review your application and the committee meets in a very democratic manner, we make our rank list. And I'd be surprised, I am surprised sometimes to people who I match because I had no idea they were that interested in Duke prior to matching. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Cummings, uh, for your wonderful comments. Your uh, years of experience and insight is definitely going to be helpful to the new applicants. And um, I thoroughly appreciate you taking time to review each and every applicants that apply to your program. Like you said, they, of course, devoted their time and money and um, to apply for the uh, program. With that, uh, now let's get into more of the specifics of the application preparation. Um, Melissa, uh, in your opinion, uh, how soon should an applicant start requesting letters of recommendation from the supervisors or attendings? And can you talk a little bit about your own experience and challenges in obtaining letter of recommendation as an international medical graduate? Of course. So regarding on how soon should we start requesting for letters of recommendation, I think it should be soon enough so the attendings can actually remember your experience with them and they can have fresh memories about uh, your interaction in the department and your highlights in the department. Uh, but also I would recommend a couple of uh, other uh, tips that will be like whenever you want to ask for a recommendation letter, remember to have your CV ready for them so they can read them, they will ask for it. So be prepared, be ready for that. Also, uh, remember to give them enough time, maybe at least four weeks, as we were talking about. Uh, these are very busy people, important people. So we want to make sure they have enough time to review your CV and write a good letter. Uh, another tip will be sending a reminder, maybe one week before of your deadline, so they can actually review the letter and send it on time. Of course, a friendly reminder just to make sure everything is it's okay. Uh, about my experience, I had an amazing experience before COVID. I was very lucky, very blessed, and I had the opportunity to rotate through three different departments in the U.S., but that was also in three different states. So I had to move all over the place, and I didn't have friends on those areas. So that also implied more expenses and a lot of coordination uh, because I was finishing my rotations for example, at the end of the month and starting the next day in a different state. And that requires a lot of planning. Uh, but I was very blessed, very lucky to meet all these people and have the opportunity to see all these places, all these different departments. And challenges in obtaining letters of recommendation as an IMG. First of all, personally, as an IMG, uh, the first thing was trying to ask for the letter of recommendation. Uh, it can be difficult to talk about it and even mention it to the attendees, but I think they are very used to this. So we have to be open. And even from the first day, eventually I learned that you can talk about the objectives you have for the rotation and mention that one of your objectives is getting a letter of recommendation at the end of the rotation. So just have an open communication and be very transparent and work hard, have a good attitude and be willing to learn as much as you can. Those are 
Awesome tips, uh, Dr. Bautista. I One thing I might uh, just add, if I could, I've often found it helpful when asking for a letter of recommendation um, to phrase it as, you know, would you be willing to write me a strong letter of recommendation? Um, just because, you know, you obviously, of course, want to have a strong letter of recommendation written by somebody who knows you well. And I've often found that, you know, uh, I think attendings, pathologists, they're busy and they also want you to succeed as well. So if, for example, they don't know you particularly well, I, I think they're prob- they probably would say, um, you know, sorry, I think I think you're good, but I don't think I have enough experience with you to be able to write a strong letter of recommendation for you. Because uh, personally on my application, I would rather have a strong uh, letter um, by somebody who knows me really well versus, you know, a letter from maybe the chair of the department uh, who doesn't know me very well. I cannot agree with both uh, Melissa and uh, Clarissa. You know, I think you have to be really vocal about wanting a strong letter of recommendation. And if you had only limited experience with a particular attending and that letter of recommendation is vital for you, which holds true for most of the international medical graduate, probably a good idea would be to include the curriculum by day as well as the personal statement that you plan to uh, you know, submit that era season to show your dedication and motivation towards pathology. So far in my limited uh, career, I have read many letter of recommendations which talks about what the applicant wrote in the personal statement or even the curriculum by day. And they just quote whatever is written there. You know, That's another way to have an attending write a strong letter of recommendation from whatever opportunity you were able to grab. With that, um, let's move to Dr. Uh, Cummings. How long does it usually take for ERAS to release a letter of uh, recommendation for assignment to a program once later writers have submitted a web letter of recommendation to ERAS in your experience? It's an interesting question. And I'll be honest, I had never really thought about it until receiving it uh, when I just read it a few hours ago. My, my experience is I have received many emails or uh, you know, correspondences through the match system from applicants. Dear Dr. Cummings, I just want to let you know I just uploaded my third letter of recommendation. And then later that day, I go in, I'm reviewing things, and it's there. So I think it's pretty quickly. I, I think if you if you really go through the AAMC website and you look for a specific answer, you're not going to find it. But I, I think, like I believe Dr. Batista and Dr. Jordan have mentioned, you you want to be early. You want to be ahead of the game, especially on that first day when the interview season opens for us to review applicants, because it just then, I think, you know, I don't hold it against anyone if it isn't. But I think minimum five days in case there's a glitch in the system. It's not infrequent that ERAS needs to be updated or the system is rebooting or I'll get an email. ERAS will not be available to program directors. We have the so-called program director workstation and it might not be available from Sunday at 2 p.m. until Monday at 3 a.m. You know, they give you all these all these warnings. So I would just, it's kind of like when I know I've got to get to the airport to take a flight, I'm like the guy who's there five hours before the flight, because I know I'll get stuck in traffic or, you know, I don't know, something will happen. And so, yeah, you can never be enough ahead of the game. But I think five days is reasonable. 
And I don't hold anything against it. If you're a day late or a few days, or I understand uh, you ask people to write letters, they forget, they don't do it, they're unreliable. And that's the nature of medicine. So I have a follow-up question to you, Dr. Cummings. So if an applicant do not have all the four layers of recommendation or three layers of recommendation available when, they, when you have already downloaded the applica uh, application of that particular applicant, you will know that the fourth layer of recommendation is uploaded only when the applicants inform you or is there a way that you get alerted by the system itself that there is a new LOR from the particular applicant? Yeah, we get alerts. I see. Okay, good to know. Yeah, I, I also want to reiterate the fact that you should be at least giving five to seven business days for the ERAS to upload the letter of recommendation and approve uh, so that it is available for time to review. Uh, with that, uh, let's move to Clarissa. How long does it typically take for your medical school to submit MSPE to ERAS? You know, um, I think it depends uh, a bit on the medical school. I think, as you mentioned earlier, Dr. Viscota, um, that's kind of uh, the medical school's job to upload the MSPE to the ERAS uh, system. Uh, so it's it's really unfortunately going to depend on your medical school. And, and I don't think there's really much an applicant can do to kind of speed that process up. What I would say is, um, of course, just make sure you're on top of your medical school email, um, you know, respond to any requests from your medical school in a very timely manner. Um, they're probably going to ask you, for example, for, uh, I believe they were called three noteworthy characteristics that get included as part of your MSPE. So make sure you answer those in a very timely manner so that uh, your MSPE can get uploaded as soon as possible, as soon as it's ready. Uh, the other thing that uh, my med school offered, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not sure if perhaps others do as well, I, I got to kind of go into the office and uh, review a paper copy of my MSPE, not not for any content. I couldn't, you know, make any changes to the content, of course, but just for typos. Um, and I, I did end up finding one or two small typos. Uh, so be sure to do that if that is available to you, just so your MSPE can be as good as it possibly can be. That's a very uh, useful advice, Clarissa, and I think it holds true even for your ERA CV and the personal statement. Do read it again and again to find small typos or grammatical errors, but that is actually reflecting your personality to the reader on the other side who haven't ever met. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And I think um, just to kind of echo what Dr. Cummings said about the LORs, I would imagine, and, and please, Dr. Cummings or Dr. Pagan, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I don't think that a program would necessarily count it against you if your medical school didn't upload your MSPE right before. I mean, that that's not really uh, up to the applicant, unfortunately. But uh, the good thing is, you know, medical schools obviously have a lot of experience uploading these letters for uh, their students. So I think everything should uh, be up in a timely manner. Hi, Clarissa. Yes, I absolutely agree. I would not hold it against that, uh, uh, an attorney or uh, an applicant if they had uh, delayed materials, especially if it's something I'm I definitely agree with what's been said. And as we'll probably get into in a few more questions, the each piece of your application is only one piece of a giant, a giant, uh, you know, conglomeration of facts and figures and items. So I don't, I just don't focus on one thing. I want to dive more into the same area that Clarisha brought up. Dr. Pagan, do programs consider applicant, 
applicants if they have incomplete applications, for instance, missing MSPE or letter of recommendation. I think we have really touched on that, but still, I want to hear more specifics on that. Of course. So as we kind of been discussing, we don't hold it specifically against someone if they have incomplete materials. Um, I, I, like Dr. Cummings, I also like to read and review every single applicant that comes through my ERAS, uh, my, my program director workstation. And, um, you know, it might make the difference to have those com that completed application before you get an interview. However, if it's not ready on time, uh, you know, communication is very important. Telling the program, you know, I'm expecting a letter, uh, please expect it, or, or you know, I, I, a letter is now uploaded, please review my application. Those are all things that you can do and are available to you. So like we've been saying, communication, following up with your programs is really important and, and can really assure that you, uh, that you get those programs to, to read your applications uh, once they're completed. Thank you so much. Um, Clarissa, I'm gonna circle back to you again. Uh, can you briefly describe how to write an effective uh, ERAS curriculum by T? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's one of the most important parts of your application, just because it really can help you demonstrate um, both your experience and your interest in pathology specifically. Uh, so I would be sure to definitely highlight, um, you know, things that you've done uh, related to pathology and also use this uh area of your of your application to kind of go a little bit in depth you know you can feel free to describe a little bit um, you know each line item so for example I was the president of my medical school's pathology interest group so I could have just you know said president pathology interest group you know 2018 to 2020 or, or whatever the years were um, but you know I think it's important to take the opportunity to describe a little bit um, about what that involves so for example you know uh, interfacing with uh, pathology attending um, at the medical school, uh, setting up workshops uh, for, you know, we did like a, a FNA of uh, chicken liver uh, as one of our workshops that, that we did at, for the interest group, um, or, you know, setting up social hours with pathology residents so that medical students could get a little more introduction to the field and what it would be like to be a resident. So, you know, just, uh, you know, getting to elaborate a little more, I think really helps kind of flesh out your application a bit. Uh, and I think it's also useful if you can to include the number of hours that you spent on each project uh, or each, um, you know, item in your ERAS CD. I think that helps programs kind of gauge, uh, you know, really uh, how, how much you've, you've done in those specific areas. Um, so I think, you know, it's important to highlight, uh, you know, conferences you went to, you know, posters that you presented. I was asked about um, those things during pretty much all uh, my interviews. And again, it really just helps you to, uh, you know, to sort of demonstrate, hey, I, I do have interest and experience in pathology. And that doesn't mean that you should only include pathology related things. Um, I do get asked that a lot uh, by applicants. You know, if you have like volunteer experience that's not in pathology, not even in medicine, maybe, uh, I think that's totally fair to include that. It, it kind of helps, uh, you know, really show who you are as a person. Um, and I think that's important in your application as well. And I guess while it's not technically part of your CV, kind of building off of that concept, uh, I, I think it's actually really important to fill out the hobbies and interests section of ERAS. Um, I talked about my hobbies in pretty much every single interview. And actually, you know, like, at, for instance, here at Mayo, when our program coordinators uh, you know, are preparing like a face sheet for for us as residents and and for the attendings. They include the and and I 
believe this is true for many programs, they pretty much include your name, your photo, your medical school, and your hobbies. And, and that's going to be pretty much it, you know? So, so your hobbies actually end up being a pretty important part of your application. And, you know, they can make you more memorable. They can just kind of add dimension to your application. And so similar to my advice about the ERAS CV, you know, I would, you know, add a sentence or two about each hobby that you have, you know, especially if you have a more generic hobby. So for example, like reading is one of my hobbies, but I can definitely make that a little more memorable by specifying that, you know, I read about 30 uh, books per year, mostly fiction, some nonfiction. And my favorite genre is cozy British murder mysteries like Agatha Christie. So that's kind of some of the advice I have. Thank you so much, Clarisha. That was so well put. And I also second that, you know, I'm in the reviewer side now and I'm reviewing any CV or application. The first thing my eyes goes to is the hobbies and interest. And there starts the small talk for the entire interview period. Um, I think it's uh, it's in the candidates uh, code where how to, you know, like uh, um, lead an interviewer in which direction they want to and CV, URA CV, um, plays a significant pivotal role on how the entire interview can go. Uh, with that, um, I have another question to Dr. Cummings uh, regarding CV as well. Now uh, that the USMLE scores are no more numeric, it's just pass or fail, what additional attributes uh, as a program director are attractive in a candidate CV? Great question. And I think a lot of us have this have this question in mind since we've now gone past fail for step one of USMLE. I've, I've given it some thought and I have the secret. The secret is there is no secret. And for me, again, it's just one metric. And quite honestly, whether you're in the bottom quartile or the top, that really doesn't play a lot of role, I don't think. There are many things in your application. It could be a single sentence in your personal statement that might grab my attention. For example, I took a gap year after undergrad and I taught fifth grade math. I'm going to be interested in that person because I know that's a lot of crowd control and babysitting and you've got to have a lot of stamina to be a fifth grade teacher at least you know, thinking about what I was like in fifth grade. There are many other things on the application, something in one of your letters of recommendation. And Dr. Jordan and Dr. Batista have given great advice here about getting letters. And I, I think it's also incumbent, I mean, I'm not gonna write a letter for someone unless it's a great letter. And I think I need to be honest with the person asking me that. Just because I might not be able to write a great letter, other people might. Okay, and it could be anything in that letter. For example, a simple statement, Dr. Bautista is the best medical student in the top 1% I've worked with. That, that's something that grabs my attention. I don't care if she's got a 201 on step one or a 251, right? To me, these things matter. They all go into how we're interpreting the application and then putting it to a vote of who we're going to interview and are we going to draw the line on, are we going to interview 80 or 90 or 100 or 120, or I would want to go up to 150, but still, there's always going to be people left out. But it could just be that one sentence on your application that, that makes a difference. It could be a hobby. 
If you tell me your hobby is ice hockey, I, there's a good chance I might offer you an interview. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to see ice hockey in everybody's uh, <laughs> applications this year. So that might, I might not be telling the truth here. I can be kind of deceptive, but uh, again, I, I know it's a stressful time. I know everybody wants to match. I hope everybody can match in the right fit for them. You might want to live only on the West Coast. I only want to be on the South. I knew on in the South, I knew my, on my interview day, this was the place for me. And I've been here, residency fellowship, and they keep renewing my contract every year. So again, I know it's a stressful time. I don't want to get existential on everybody. I just feel like the universe puts us in the right place at the right time. And I'll tell you from my, you know, the five I rank to match to the bottom five on the rank list, there's not a whole lot of difference. I could easily flip that either way and shuffle the deck multiple different ways. So if you don't match at your place, believe me, it's a very razor thin line. And that's just kind of how life goes. Sometimes, you know, things just work out. If they didn't work out the way they did, you wouldn't meet your significant other. You wouldn't whatever walk into the, uh, you know, the bodega and hit the mega millions. I mean, I don't know. Thank you so much, Dr. Cummings, uh, for your insight into what, you know, else can be put in the CV uh, now that the USMLE scores are no longer numeric. But like you said, even when they were numeric, we were considering uh, overall attributes of a candidate more than just the numeric scores. Uh, with that, um, Melissa, any advice on choosing programs to apply to? How did you uh, make your program list? Any sites you would recommend? Sure. Uh, so regarding on how many programs to apply, I think that's a very individual uh, question. It depends on the applicant. Uh, to be honest, as an IMG, I apply very broadly. So I was applying uh, from the east to the west coast. I had a very open mind regarding where to match. But of course, it's a multifactorial process and there are some specific priorities for everyone and they are all, all valid. Uh, some people want to stay close to their family. That's excellent. Some people uh, want to focus more on research or maybe uh, they see themselves more in academics or in private practice, or they already know what they want to do for fellowship and they know they want to stay there and it's the perfect place for them. So I think all of these are perfect valid questions and it depends on the person who is applying. Uh, personally, I also consider uh, some immigration uh, uh, options. Uh, also, you have to investigate about the visa options they are offering and what's going to be your future like, depending if you want to stay in the U.S. or if you want to go back to your home country. About how did I make uh, my program list? I am a very old-fashioned person, so I was just taking notes after every interview, making sure everything was fresh on my mind, trying to remember everyone's faces, the attitudes, uh, how engaged they were also on my interview, the questions that I had, and especially the meetings with the residents. I feel they give so much information and they give you a hint on how is the environment and how is the vibe in the program. And I really trust my guts on that. Um, some websites that I could recommend, uh, there are different 
uh, tools that we can use to run programs as well. I know Doximity also has a way uh, to check the ranking and I think it gives you also the opportunity to do your own ranking. Uh, and there are other sites available, but again, I'm a very old fashioned person. So I was like taking notes, my, I had my spreadsheet and I went for that. Like right after my interview, I was ready to write my comments. Clarissa, do you have anything to add on this? Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I think Dr. Bautista gave really excellent advice. Uh, one thing I'll just say, you know, I think it's an excellent idea to take notes about the programs, especially right after, because I promise, you know, by the time you do, uh, you know, a lot of interviews, they're kind of going to start to blend together a little bit. So, yeah, it's important to document your impressions uh, as soon as you can after the interview. Um, I think, you know, doing it, taking notes uh, is an excellent way. The way I did it. Uh, so, you know, on Google Forms, you can you can kind of make like a, a form, like a questionnaire for yourself. And so what I did was I just kind of sat down uh, with my husband, who I couples matched with, and we came up with questions about programs that, you know, we thought would be important to us. So, for example, um, you know, they, they could be anything like uh, we, we always ask residents, for example, would you uh, choose this program again? That was uh, so that was a question I put in my uh, in my Google form. Uh, we have dogs. So we even had a question about like, hey, is this a dog friendly city? Um, so, you know, just, you know, different things like that. What fellowships are available? Um, and then as Dr. Bautista mentioned, like, how did the residents make you feel? Uh, did they seem like a cohesive group? Do they seem like they're friendly with each other? Um, so, yeah, we just kind of compiled these all into a Google form. And then after every single interview, I would sit down, fill out the Google form, and then that way it, it populates into a spreadsheet. And you're actually asking yourself the same questions for each program. So there's maybe a little bit of standardization uh, to that as well. Uh, and the other thing I'll just mention it, uh, is that I did participate in the couples match uh, with my husband. He's an emergency medicine resident. Uh, so I had also had that to consider when choosing programs to apply to. So, you know, we talked to our mentors to think about programs. Um, and uh, in addition, we also used a website called medmap.io. That's M-E-D-M-A-P. Uh, basically, this is a website which uh, allows you to view all the programs uh, for different specialties, and you can overlay, you know, multiple specialties. So we did the pathology one and the emergency medicine one. That way, we could see, you know, where uh, there are, you know, what locations have both programs. Um, so we found it helpful, as you might imagine, to especially consider large cities, which tended to have, you know, multiple residency programs and, and therefore more options for us as a couple. Uh, but, you know, we ended up matching to a small town in Minnesota uh, at a fantastic program. So don't discount uh, those either. Uh, and then the other final thing I'll say is, you know, as a resident active on Twitter, I've had numerous applicants reach out to me asking about my program. Um, and I, I personally think that's a fantastic idea. You know, I can only speak for myself, but I'm happy to, you know, share my experiences with my program, share my experiences with the couples match to, uh, you know, try to help my future colleagues. I want to second Melissa's uh, comment regarding international medical graduates requirement of visa. That is a very important requirement. And so far, most of the international medical graduates that I have encountered are very reluctant to talk about that during the interview process openly. I think it is a must for you to immigrate and work legally in the United States, and you should be open to talk about it, even, even in your CV or even in your interview day. Um, second um, thing, 
Clarissa pointed out, it's a very um, good idea to make a Google form so that you can follow through what you have applied and go back. So most of the information that Clarissa mentioned is also available in her blog post about couple match in our website. You can always go back and look at that. With that, I would like to move to Dr. Pagan. Uh, what are you looking in a candidate's PS? Any advice on writing a captivating uh, personal statement? Thanks. You know, there's a lot that I look at in a candidate's personal statement. And I think a lot of the information that we look at is something, it's echoed a bit in what has been discussed already. But in general, for a personal statement, uh, what I'm really looking for is a statement that discusses your interest in pathology. That should be first and foremost what you're trying to convey and communicate with your personal statement. I want to know about your experiences in the specialty. What kind of exposures have you had to pathology? Is it a club? Is it clinical rotations? Those are all really informative things when I read that personal statement. I'd also uh, want to read about why you are a good fit for the pathology. Realistically, what is it? What draws you into pathology? Uh, these are things that you know make me see. Oh, they make, maybe they'll be a great applicant for my program if if we share similar uh, draws. Um, what attracts you to a program specifically is also really wonderful to hear. It, there's nothing as you know making a personal statement for each program is is probably a lot of work. However, you can always tweak a little bit and say, well, you know, I'm really attracted about X or Y part of your program, and it shows me as a program director that you're you're researching, that you're being careful about what choices you are when you're looking for programs. So it, it shows me your enthusiasm right away. And of course, in a personal statement, I'm also looking for, uh, you know, any other comments that uh, that explain anything in your in your application that I might flag. For example, if someone took a gap year, I might ask you about that gap year. And, and, and the answers are often really positive and wonderful, but I would, I would seek that in the personal statement. Um, and finally, you know, I, I hope that I see in your in your pathology personal statements what your future view for yourself is within pathology. Why do you want to, you know, who do you see yourself in the future? I think it's a really important thing because that way, as program directors, I can already start thinking, how can I guide this person to become the pathologist that they want to be? So well put, uh, Dr. Pagan. Uh, one, um, another advice that I can give to applicants are like, uh, if you have encountered any failure, feel free to talk about that failure and what you learned from that failure and what made you a stronger applicant this year, whether it's a state failure or whether you did not match last year. Uh, if you are able to express yourself um, in your personal statement and so how it made you a better applicant, you have a more chance to be considered. Uh, with that, uh, let's move to Dr. Cummings. Now we have, um, you know, almost uh, completed all of the preparation phase of the uh, application. Um, can you briefly outline how a program starts assessing applications on September 28th or afterwards? Does a program use uh, any automatic filters to screen applications? Great questions. I think most programs have their own styles and their own formats. Personally, I don't even know what an automatic filter is. I wouldn't even know how to, how to go about it. But there are many different ways. I would say most programs probably have a committee of volunteers out of faculty and residents and chief residents that are on the recruitment committee. And you kind of divide up the applications. All right, you take one through 50, I'll take 50 through 100, you'll take 51. And then we have multiple sessions where we discuss and make like our 
our top list and and take it from there. And then there's some give and take about how many interview days we're going to have and how many applicants per interview day. And I can say that's that's not so simple either. And I think uh, especially Drs. Pagan and Vascoda probably realize there's a lot of effort every program goes into to putting on interview days, having faculty available, making sure they're prepared, giving them the training necessary, uh, having the day run seamlessly. For me, I'm completely computer illiterate, so I rely 100% on my chief residents to do these breakout rooms and schedule the meet and greets and all these other things. And then I just show up and then see what happens. So there's a lot that goes into it. Our program coordinators, I can't live without my program coordinator. And if I can just kind of ad lib here, I think as applicants, you need to realize everyone you interact with is part of your interview. You interact with the residency coordinator, they are part of the interview team and they are taking notes and they are commenting, you know, yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes, no, no. And it could be something as simple as that. So just every everything you interact with is part of the interview. In the old days, of course, you would go to dinner the night before downtown with the group of residents that's part of your interview, right? If you're on your eighth or ninth beer by the end of dinner, you know that's going to get back to the program director. Okay, so the entire, everything is part of the interview day. And how we select interview, who to interview and where to draw the line, like I say, it's very subjective. There's no magic number. For me, there's no secret. It just kind of organically happens. Again, I'm sorry that's not too helpful. And I, I wish I could be more uh, specific if Drs. Pagan or Vascoda have, have the secret, I'd love to hear it. No, Dr. Cummings, I'm happy to report that I do not have the secret residency interview and our process is, sounds fairly similar to yours where we review our applicants and and come up with a, a list. And, and like you said, you know, it's, it's not always easy. It's not always straightforward. Um, but we do our best to, you know, we put in a lot of effort to try to meet the applicants and, and we, we, we try to put our best face forward and we try to also uh, meet and get as much information from the applicants. We want to learn as much about you as we can when you're interviewing with us. With us. Right. I think the biggest secret is no secret and it's a very combined hard work uh, and meticulously planned uh, by the residents, program coordinators, uh, and the uh, program director. Uh, I was also a part of the resident recruitment committee when I was a trainee back in Pittsburgh. And the fun uh, part of our, uh, at the end of the interview day was we would sit together with the program director and discuss and go over each applicant. You know, I think uh, that was uh, very helpful. Um, it and it helped us realize that we are also a vital part of the whole uh, recruitment process. Um, with that, we have come to towards the end of our podcast. It was great to have you all as our uh, as our guest this uh, um, guest, and probably the listeners will find it useful and implies about some of the things that we discussed today throughout their application process. 
Uh, please feel free to give any last minute advice. I'm going to start with uh, Clarissa. Oh, uh, last minute advice. Uh, okay. Yeah, I guess, you know, one thing that I think can be really intimidating uh, when you're planning to apply is starting your personal statement. Uh, I, I remember feeling very intimidated. So the way I kind of approached it is uh, I thought about the specific, you know, characteristics or qualities that I wanted to communicate in my personal statement. Um, of course, as was mentioned before, it's, it's, of course, very important to show your dedication to the field of pathology. But I decided, you know, as an example, in my personal statement, I also wanted to communicate that I'm a very intellectually curious person and that I'm detailed oriented. And as we know, in writing, it's you know important to show rather than tell. So I think determining these qualities can really kind of help uh, when you're thinking back on your experiences and help you to determine you know what which one of those experiences will uh, show those qualities and, and highlight that. So that's kind of the last piece of advice I have for applicants. And yeah, good luck with with the interview season. Thank you so much, Clarissa, for that wonderful advice. Uh, Anything, uh, Melissa, you would advise? Last advice, I would say enjoy the process. I feel sometimes it's so overwhelming and you have so many deadlines and you have all these interviews and you have your to-do list and so many things are happening, but you have worked so hard to reach this point in your life. And although it is very busy, you have to enjoy it, embrace it. It's a once in a lifetime experience, meeting all these people interested in pathology and having the opportunity to meet all these departments, uh, interviewing with residents and grant directors attendees is a great experience. Trust the process and as Dr. Cummins says, trust the universe and you will be placed in the best uh, place for you. It's gonna be your best match. Thank you so much, Malisha. How about you, Dr. Cummings? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm probably a few years along than most everyone on this call. <laughs> and, you know, for me, my own personal philosophy is if I win a million bucks or lose a million, it's the same. The fact is, congratulations to all the applicants. You're in the game. You're in the arena. You have a fighting chance. You may win, you may lose. It may work out the way you envision it, and it may not. Either way, you're in the game, and that's half the battle. You will, you will land where you land, and I look forward to being your colleague in this great uh, career of being a pathologist and the great work we do for our patients. Maybe one little piece of advice about making your rank list. Just be cognizant that people come and go. People you meet on interview day, they might not be there when you're a PGY one or two. I go through this with you know, my own kids. Where are we gonna go to school? What do we wanna do? Take that into consideration, right? Don't, don't throw away Duke just because Dr. Cummings is a program director. Dr. Cummings might not be here next year. And then you may have really wanted Duke or some other place. And then you sold yourself short. Like, be at the place you really want to be because people are going to come and go. And maybe you had a bad experience with someone on your interview day. Again, you have to factor that into the equation, but don't make it the main factor. There are many other bits and pieces. So well, so well put, Dr. Cummings. Next, uh, Dr. Pagan, any last words? I would say that I, I feel like I missed out on having podcasts like this when I was applying for residency. This seems like wonderful advice for everybody. I'm glad that these things exist. Um, and please, you know, listen to people, communicate, 
Path Twitter is alive and well, and many of us are there and happy to talk, um, reach out to others, get their experiences. Uh, we're a wonderful community, and, and pathologists are a really a great uh, community of people. So please reach out and talk. We're, we're happy to have you with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Pragan. With that, I would like to thank again all of my guests for attending today and all of my listeners for listening to this wonderful uh, podcast. I hope you continue listening to PathPod podcast and also visit our website at www.matchtopath.com. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Thank you.